So we're going to pick up our text tonight in Revelation 21. And I'm excited about tonight. So we're finally at chapters where it's like positive. And it's not to say that the other chapters, well, I wouldn't say positive because it was all about the great tribulation, the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, chapter 6 through 19. At the culmination of that, we saw where the, the Antichrist and the false prophet were grabbed and thrown into um, the lake of fire uh, of burning sulfur, or also known as brimstone. And then after that, we see where uh, the dragon, also known as Satan, the devil, he was wrapped up in a chain by one unnamed angel, if you remember that. Just one angel, we don't know who it was, just one angel chosen to be sent down with a chain, grabbed that dragon of old, Satan, with one hand, wrapped him up with a chain, and he too joined the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. So they are put away, that is something that we then looked at the millennium, the time in which you and I will rule and reign with Jesus. As Jesus comes back to this earth, when he does, Zechariah chapter 14 says his foot touches the Mount of Olives, which by the way was the place where he left earth when he ascended to his father, if you remember. So the very place that he ascended up from he returns to. And Zechariah 14 tells us when he sets his foot on that mountain, it will split in two, east and west. Or excuse me, north and south, I believe. North and south, it'll split and water comes from that mountain. And it flows in both directions. One goes to the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea comes to life. And all of a sudden, um, you see great fishing happening there and orchards and vineyards and just everything comes back to life the way it was always meant to be in a Garden of Eden type setting and atmosphere. And we will rule and reign with the Lord from him setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And we will have areas of responsibility as we talked about. But the cool thing is this, is that you and I will not be in these bodies, right? Because where will we have just come from? heaven exactly we come back with jesus we come back with the armies of heaven those angels those powerful mighty angels we come back with them and jesus with just a word the sword that's in his mouth otherwise known as his word just wipes out his enemies these kingdoms that all came together to go against Jerusalem, thinking they have a quick and easy victory. Ah, oh, this will be a piece of cake. But what they don't realize is Jesus is coming. And with just one word, when they turn their armaments and the, the little bit of power they think they have towards Jesus, he just one word <laughs> wipes them out and they're gone. And we set up, he sets up his kingdom and we rule and reign with him, but we're in our glorified bodies. And that's what's so awesome. That's what I love about that is that you and I will be in our glorified bodies and we get to rule and reign in our, our glorified bodies. Just like when Jesus ascended, he went into heaven with his glorified body. But when he was walking around here for a little while, presenting himself to uh, his disciples and showing them that I'm risen from the dead. Um, they could touch him and feel him and everything, but he could just walk through a wall. It says that when they were gathered, he, the doors being shut, there he was. It didn't say he opened the door and came in. He just appeared. In other words, he went through the door. He went through the wall. We'll be able to do that. And that's going to be so awesome. I can't wait. That's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm excited about that. But after the millennium, you remember generations have lived. In other words, generations of mortal people. People will still be on the earth. They'll still be 
having children and there's going to be some generations that will live all that thousand years and you and i will help in the enforcement of righteousness in that endeavor that whole time and um, at the end of the millennium all these people would have known is righteousness that's all they would have known similar to adam and eve when they were in the garden before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all they knew was good. All they knew was righteousness. There was nothing to compare it to. It was just all good. But people would say, well, then why did God put that tree in there? That one thing, they could do anything. They could eat of any tree. They could do anything, but they put that, he put that one there and told them not to do it. Was that a trick? No, it was a choice because love requires a choice. You can't just have uh, you know, all goodness and they could do all things without really knowing if there's a choice or an alternative. And so God provided that. He said, obey me in this. Do not partake in that. For the day that you do, you will surely die. And of course, they didn't die that day, but they began dying that day. And so there has to be a choice. Well, the same thing happens if you fast forward and you go all the way to the end of the millennium, the end of that thousand years, what happens? All of the generations would have only known righteousness. Yes, they are in their fleshly bodies like we are today. Yes, they have those fleshly tendencies. But the moment they begin to think about perhaps doing wrongdoing, we snap into action and we stop it. And we go, ah, ah, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it, you know? And so, oh, oh, okay, okay. And we, we enforce this righteousness, and that's all they would have known. And by the way, they would have only known the goodness of God, the goodness of the Lord. Nothing but good has been poured out upon these people that would have lived uh, during that millennium. But at the end of that, they get their choice. And that comes in the form of Satan being released from the abuso, the abyss, and he's released and he's free to go about. And what he does is he goes around and he whispers in the ears of, of it, seem, it would seem, of kings or leaders of the mortal people to form a force against and come against God one final time. And of course, we know the end of that story. That's when it's like, no, you're done. God says, away with you. This is the end of rebellion. I've had it. You're done. And so then what happens is, um, we start getting ourselves into chapter 21. What does John see at that time? And that gets us to tonight's text. Quick little catch-up we had to do there. So if you join me with me in prayer, we'll go ahead and get started. Father, again, we thank you for this time that, Lord, you've allowed us to just set aside and be part of the, the brothers and sisters of this fellowship but above that, we're the bride, Lord. We're the church, and um, we're your bride, and we're here to spend some time in your word, and, and just as we look through this amazing book that you've allowed us to uh, be privy to the information that is in that book, Lord, that the vision that you showed John as he was able to pin this and write this letter to, in his day, people that were hurting greatly and suffering greatly. Lord, this book would do the same purpose today to people who are hurting greatly and suffering and wondering what in the world is going on. Lord, we have hope in our hearts. Lord, you are our hope. And Lord, you have a plan. And the cool thing is, is we get to be part of that plan. And we rejoice tonight, Father, because of that. So we are greatly honored, Lord, to just even be part of your plan and to be here tonight, Father. I pray that your word would just sink into our hearts tonight. Holy Spirit, move mightily, Father, and speak through me to share, Lord, what is on your heart, Father. So we praise you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So chapter 21, this title of this uh, teaching is New Heaven and New Earth. And in chapter 21, verse 1, John sees this. He says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, 
there was no more sea. So a few things to think about. In this one verse, we don't make it very far before we already start having to dissect this because there's a lot here. A new heaven and a new earth. That phrase alone, we already are saying, okay, a new earth, I get it. A new earth, I understand. You know, we live in a fallen world and it's one of those things where ever since the fall of man, the world changed and it changed and it became wicked. The people on earth at that time, as generations went on and on and on, it became so wicked that the wickedness rose to the heavens. And God said, okay, we got to do something here. And of course, you know the story. Um, there was one righteous man in his family, Noah, and he was able to uh, escape the judgment that was poured down upon the earth, literally poured down upon the earth as it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Noah and his wife and their kids were able to survive that. And so emerging out of that became a new world. Of course, it changed drastically. Uh, it was a cataclysmic uh, thing that, in, that happened to literally the top topography of the planet. You know, the, it, it was believed that, you know, the, it took 40 days for that protective canopy around the world to fall. That's what allowed people to live 900 years like Methuselah, oldest living man in history. And many people live seven, 800, 900 years. Um, and that's how they were able to. That canopy, that vapor canopy around the world around the globe protected people from the UV rays, which, we, which ages us quite rapidly in comparison. 40 days and 40 nights is how long it took for that to fall. And when it did, it flooded the whole earth. Noah and his family survived that. But finally, there's things that had to happen as the world emerged. That water had to go so, somewhere. So the ocean floors sank, and the Alps and the Andes and the Rockies rose. And that created what? Runoff, which created things like the Grand Canyon and, and all of these things. And it explains why we're finding whale bones in Kansas, as excavators would see, and sea turtles. And it's like, it's only sea life that would, how did that end up here? Those are things that explain that. But a new world emerged out of that baptism, if you will. Well, there's going to be a new earth. And we understand because we live in a world today where not only is it fallen, we get that, sin takes its toll. But pollution, and you can make that argument, and all of these other things, the earth we understand, that makes sense to us, a new earth, but a new heaven? A new heaven, why would there be a new heaven? Well, because we're told in the book of Job, and specifically chapter 15, that even the heavens are, not, are unclean to God. And why is that? Well, we remember back in Revelation chapter 12 that our accuser is in heaven day and night doing what? Just that, accusing the brethren, accusing you and me of, oh, see what she did? Oh, did you hear what he said? Accusing day and night. In other words, we found out in the book of Job chapter 1 that you know Satan has access to heaven anytime he wants. He can't stay, but he can go there. And in chapter 1 of Job, how the angels presented themselves to the Lord, all creation showed up. It was roll call. And all of creation showed up at the time, you know, angels and everything. Well, guess what? Satan had to show up too because he's a created being. So he doesn't get to escape. So there he is. And, of course, he gets the dialogue of God. And, you know, remember that conversation. Hey, where you been? Ah, you know, roaming around to and fro. Have you considered my servant Job, how righteous he is? None is as righteous as he is. Oh, is he righteous for nothing? You got a hedge of protection about him. But I guarantee if you took all those things, he'd curse you to your, to your face. And so that conversation is interesting. It's a quick insight glimpse of something that happened in heaven that, wow, how powerful must that have been? Poof, Satan says, I'm out of here. Because God gave him permission to do what he wanted to do, 
but don't touch the person. Don't touch Job. And so you know the rest of that story. But heaven is tainted, if you will, because Satan has access to it. And he's also there accusing you and me day and night. You know that little thing you thought the other day? You didn't mean to. It just happened. Well, Satan was like, ha ha! Did you see that, God? Did you, did you see what he thought? Did you hear what she said? That sin? You and I are in our fleshly bodies still. We war against the flesh in the spirit, don't we? We feel that battle. Paul says that. I, my, my battle between, he talks about a battle between his flesh and his spirit. And the things he wants to do, he does not do. But the things he doesn't want to do, he practices. And so you and I feel that same war within us. And we don't like our flesh, but we don't have a choice. It's, it's part of us. And there, it's inerrant. And, and we have tendencies that we don't like, but we still fall susceptible to certain tendencies in our flesh and our sinful nature. And boy, there's Satan <laughs> accusing us day and night. So... In God's economy, there needs to be a new heaven, one that now as Satan has been dealt with, the end of rebellion, a new heaven and a new earth emerge. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Let's go back and look at something. Is this a new heaven and a new earth? Or is it this, just this one kind of dusted off and cleaned up, refurbished, remodeled, restructured? Well, Isaiah chapter 65 kind of gives us a little insight. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. It says, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And that word create, we're back in the Old Testament, right? So what do we do? We look at the Hebrew. And that word create in the Hebrew is bara, but we're also going to look at a principle. It's called the principle of first mention. The best commentary on the Bible is what? the Bible. So when do you think the word create first shows up? Genesis 1.1. Exactly. Created, he says, God created the heavens and the earth. So did he refurbish something then? No, it was something created out of nothing. And this is where we lose our evolutionists. That's where they have to take a right turn at Albuquerque because they can't hang with that thought. That introduces something that is like someone would be, have to have uh, you know, intelligent design, or we would have to answer to something bigger than us. Well, we wouldn't want to do that. So that's where we lose them. But God created a, a, a heaven and an earth in Genesis 1-1 out of nothing. And the same idea takes us to this verse right here. Bara in, in Hebrew literally means just that, to create something out of nothing. And that's what we're told here in Isaiah. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Also here it says, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And that's interesting because when we get a, a little bit further into the chapter, we'll talk about that part, uh, that part and make that point. Also to look there, he says, also there was no more sea. No more sea. Any surfers in the room? I know of two right here, my son and, and Mike, surfer from Long Island, a lot of surfers here. Um, no more sea. And so for some of us, that's like, wait, what? I mean, we go to the beach and we throw the ball for our dogs and dip our toes. We go to the beach for Thursday night during the summertime. Here in a couple of weeks, we'll probably be there, right, Rich? Probably. And we stay there till December. Um, no, October. <laughs> it feels like December. But it's refreshing and cool. But how many times have we been there and we look out past our pastor because he faces us. He faces onshore. We're facing him and the backdrop is beautiful, right? The clouds, the sunsets, whales we have seen in the past. And we've seen 
uh, what are those birds that like dive in, pelicans? I mean, it's amazing. It's beautiful. There's going to be no more of that. And we're like, in our hearts, we're kind of like, but really? Think about John. Where is John when he, he sees this vision and pins this? He was banished to an island, an island of Patmos, and he's on this island. And remember what we talked about. This wasn't some beautiful tropical island where people like to go to vacation. This was a prison island, and it was rocky, dry, barren. It, this was not a place that you wanted to go spend time, but it, he didn't have a choice. They tried to kill him boiling him in oil. That didn't work. So now what do we do with him? Well, send him off. If he's out of sight, he's out of mind. Let's get him off to Patmos. And he goes there, and you could imagine the chaos that would happen on that island. You're running for your life. What, there's other prisoners out there. They're alive. Would they want to kill you? Would, you know, so you're like, it's in this rocky, barren, dry time in, in his life, and he's surrounded by what? Yeah, the sea. And it's almost as though he makes a specific point. Ah, and no more sea. It reminds me of that scene in Castaway with Tom Hanks. You guys remember that movie, and he's on this island, and he finally figures out how to catch fish, and he eats seafood for, what, two years, however long? And he has to remove his own tooth because it gets bad, and he's got an ice skate and a rock, and he's like, oh, oh. no painkiller. And number three, kink, passes out. But he takes care of his own dental work. What happens, though? He finally creates a raft, and he creates this sail, this makeshift sail, I think out of a, what, a urinal? Outhouse. Outhouse. It had floated off in the wreckage. Not a urinal, but, you know, you guys, we, we all know what happens. But anyway, he uses, like, half of that thing as a sail, and he gets past the surf, only to find himself in just as bad of a prison as he was when he was on the island. Now it's worse, he's out in the middle of nowhere and he's just drifting. When finally, modernization shows up in the form of a big tanker and they see him and they rescue him. Well, he's rescued, he's alive, the news, it's huge news, it's this big thing. Well, they fly him back home and, you know, FedEx, that's the people that he worked for, uh, they throw this giant party and he kind of, after the big hoopla with the press and everything like that, he kind of meanders off and he finds himself in this big conference room with a big old buffet of food. And what, guess what it is? <laughs> Seafood, crab, lobster, and it's the stuff he's just looking at like, really? <laughs> Can I get a steak? Is there a hamburger around here? No, it's all seafood. And he's just like, and it's kind of like, it would be like John, like, but yet, it's the opposite. It's almost like he makes note that, oh, and there's no sea. I've been surrounded by sea in this prison this whole time. No more sea. So no sea, but then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So now the new Jerusalem is coming down and it's descending. It says there, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But notice it doesn't mention that it touches down on earth. It doesn't land on earth. It just says it descends out of heaven. So either it does land on earth or it could be that it's suspended above earth. And that's an interesting thought too, especially when we get later into the chapter. But before we get too far, I want us to go back to 2 Peter. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because 2 Peter is very interesting. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read a few verses here because he also gives us uh, some good insight, um, I believe, when we're talking about this new heaven and this new earth. And, and those types of things. Second Peter chapter 3, we start there in verse 3. And this is one that we know of. This is one we've talked about many times, especially as it relates to 
the study of prophecy. That is verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Ha! You guys sit up there and you talk about Jesus coming back and the end of the world and, and the second coming and all these things. But yet, look at this. I mean, it's been centuries and centuries and centuries and it's all the same since the beginning of creation. But watch this, verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's just preserved by a word, the word of God, but it's reserved for fire. The first world, he says, or the first earth was what? Flooded. But this one, it says here that this world, the same world, reserved for fire until the day of judgment. Get into that a little bit more. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements, interesting word there, will melt with fervent heat. But the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy, in holy conduct and godliness? Go back there, verse uh, 10. The day the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt away with fervent heat. That gives us a glimpse of what will happen to this earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but in order for that to happen, it seems clear that the heavens that God is talking about and resides now and this earth will dissolve. And it's interesting choice of words how he says the elements, the elements themselves. What does that remind us of? All the way down to the atoms and the molecules and the electrons, protons, all the way down to the very elements the things that we can't even see with our, our bare eye, we need instruments to study these things, all the way down at the molecular level. Scientists forever have been trying to figure out what keeps an atom together. You know, these neutrons and electrons and protons all orbiting one another, what, what, what holds that together? And we know, of course, it's God. God holds all that together. It's not a mystery to us, but to the scientists. No, there's got to be a scientific, a scientific reason. And so we need to come up with a scientific term. I know. We'll call it atomic glue. That's their explanation. That's the scientific term, atomic glue, because that's the best they can come up with. with how, what's keeping that from just exploding and blowing up? We figured out how to do it. And we've seen the destruction thereof. And the result of that was at the end of World War II, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and devastating. On a side note, they say that the nuclear warheads, the ICBM missiles or warheads that we have in the arsenals today, nuclear war, makes those look like a firecracker. 
five to 700 times more powerful than that, could you imagine? It's devastation that our, our minds can't even comprehend. That's how devastating and what man will do in his endeavor to prolong himself and lift himself and have power for himself. It's very scary stuff. But be that as it may, we're talking about these elements, how they are reserved for fire and how they will burn up in a fervent heat. What would cause that? Well, what if God just said, like that, just let's go of that atom? And the elements would literally dissolve, just like Peter's telling us, and dissolve and burn up. But a new heaven and a new earth arrive on the scene here in our chapter. Very cool stuff to think about and to ponder. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, doesn't seem to make touchdown on earth. Seems that it may just be suspended there. Beautiful, out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the new communion. He is with us and we're with him. And we see him in his glory. We see him in his perfection. You know, the Bible tells us that we see the things of God through a glass darkly. Have you, have you read that? And that the picture there is if you had glass and a fire and you were able to kind of go through the ashes and you, you picked up a shard of glass, it would be covered with that black soot and ash. And you tried to look through it. You might kind of be able to see through things, but what would happen? It would be very, like, smeary and very blurry. It'd be kind of rough to see through that. But imagine that being removed. And now we see God in his glory. And he rules and reigns, but he lives with us and we live with him. And this thing we do on Sunday mornings, that awesome thing called communion, we get to take part in that. We're trying our best to understand the depths of what Jesus actually did on the cross. I mean, we kind of get it. We, we get, like, overall what our finite mi minds can comprehend, and we understand it. Thankfully, God sent his son to die on a cross for us, for you and me, to be that ultimate sacrifice so that we could accept him, his blood, cover washed away our sins completely, didn't cover them, washed them away. And we're trying in our minds to see through that shard of glass as clear as we can, but when that's removed, we'll understand it completely and totally and fully on a level that we could only dream about right now. And it'll be glorious. That'll be the new communion. No more of this hazy, murky, I. I, I get it, I kind of understand, but I really wish I could just see 100% clear. No more wishing. Then it'll be clear and it'll be glorious. God himself will be with his people and they'll be with him. Verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. No more crying. What is bringing you sorrow tonight? What is bringing you pain tonight? What are you struggling with? What is hurting you? What is coming against you? causing tears to flow. What's, what pain do you have? Back pain, hips, perhaps disease. There's been no more of that. What about this thing called sorrow, though? You know, it's been said, it's been thought about, like we get to heaven, but oh, 
we tried so hard for Uncle Billy to come to the Lord, and he never did. He's not here with us, and oh, that that is so painful. Well, the old things have passed away. What did it say? I want to read it one more time back in Isaiah, and this is key right here. The former things shall not be what? Remembered. Or come to mind, it says. So we're in heaven, and we won't be sorry or sorrowful. Because as we look around, what we see is all that we'll know. In other words, all of those loved ones and all those friends and coworkers that we spend our life here in this world witnessing to and, and sharing the gospel to, but we got mocked and we got pushed away and we got sidelined and all of these things. Our memories wiped of those things. And if you think about it, it almost has to be that way, wouldn't it? Because if we did remember, we would feel sorrow. And we would feel the pain of their absence, like they never came to know. The old things are gone. These things won't even be remembered. And I would suggest to you, I've thought about this and pondered about this all, I don't know, for years. You know, we all have had loved ones that we knew were saved, they loved the Lord, but for whatever reason, old age, disease, cancer, whatever, has taken them on to be with the Lord, and they're there now. And we're thinking, man, but aren't they bummed that we're not up there with them? I'm sure, I wonder if they look down and go, oh, man, if they could only be here with me. No, I don't think so. I think that same idea carries over to them, because why? It's not like... Maybe, maybe this happens at another time, and maybe I'm speaking out of line, but in my mind, I'm thinking, I think they're in the glory of the Lord, and they're experiencing His goodness that right now, we're not even a thought. Or, since God's outside of time, and the things of heaven would be outside of time as well, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, could it be that we're already there? because we're written in the, the book of uh, the Lamb of Life, right? The, did I say that right? <laughs> we're written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, our names are there. We've accepted Christ. So could it be that we're already there? But yet, in this dimension, we're still in this world fulfilling the things that the Lord has us doing. But perhaps they're not upset because we're there with them already. We just haven't entered that dimension yet. I don't know. It's fun to think about. These are the things I ponder, and I wouldn't get too factual about that, but this is just how my mind works. It's how, it's how my brain works. I think it's interesting. I think there might be something there personally, but no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's all gone, not to be remembered. The former things have passed away. Verse 5 and he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Ah, how do you know that stuff's the truth? Because it just said so, number one. And number two, think about the recipients of this letter, what they were going through, what they were dealing with, persecution, they had to be like you and I today. We're looking around the world going, what in the world is going on? But they were doing the same thing except literally physically being persecuted and all of the rest. Write it down and say also write this down that this is faithful and it's true. Why? Because the recipients of this letter would have been like, no, that's too good to be true. There's no way. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more persecution, no more watching my dad be dragged out through the streets and, and taken off and us left here to fend for ourselves. No, no more of that, what the church was going through in that day. None, none of that at all. That's too good to be true. Nope, it's faithful and it's true. It's the truth. 
Verse six, and he said to me, it is done. This work, what's done? The, the work, my plan, it has come to fruition. It's finished, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of the life freely to him who thirsts. On the Alpha and the Omega, that's what I love about the book of Revelation. We see Jesus as king. We see him in his glory. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's a triumphant king. And that's how he's portrayed all the way through this book. Giving him who thirsts from the water of life. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Overcomes what? Those things that are nagging at you, those troubles, those trials that you're going through. The recipients of this letter, same thing, same message to them. You who endure all of these things, when you make it through that, guess what? You'll receive inheritance. And look at where we're at in Scripture here. Okay, we're in the new heaven, new earth. The millennium's already happened, and we're in this new heaven, new earth, and we're getting inheritance. Yeah, remember we talked about this in the millennium, and in your, um, your desires here on this earth are actually given to you by God. And you, there's a reason why you have the desires that you have to do, the things that you're interested in, the things that you want to do, the things that you would love to just have all the time in the world to go and accomplish, but you can't because there's this thing called life and jobs, and college, and school, and ugh. But in your spare time, when you get a minute, you, you gravitate to something. What, what is it that you are interested in? What gets you out of bed? What excites you? We have people that are musicians. We have people that are woodworkers, work with their hands, gardeners, love to be out in the garden, work on cars. Whatever it is, what drives that? What, where did you get that? It just didn't pop in one day. You didn't download it. God gave you that desire in your heart, those interests, because we're all different. We all have those different interests. Could it be that in heaven, in this setting, you will get to experience fully that desire every single day, all the time? Because you won't have this life to be worried about. You won't have these things, but God will bless you with the ability to fulfill your desires finally the way you desire to. How glorious is that? That's cool. Whatever it is, whatever your interests are, whatever you like to do, but just can only do it here and there, You'll get to do it all the time. And there's going to be this thing called an inheritance. There's things that you will work for in heaven. It's not going to be boring. Mira said the other day, we'll sit, sit on clouds and, and strum harps. There's going to be activity. Heavy, heaven is a busy place. And you're going to be busy. I'm going to be busy. And we're going to be working towards something. And what we're working toward is what? An inheritance. We're working towards an inheritance. He who overcomes shall inherit all things to its fullest. Verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's interesting how that verse pops up. Like we're reading about all these awesome, amazing things, and then, oh, by the way, all of these people won't be there. No more of that. It will be perfection because all of these people will have been removed. But if you think about it, in our flesh, these tendencies can arise in us too. We have this thing called our flesh. 
and it stakes and it just brings us down. It's this thing that we fight again, like I said before. It's we battle against the, the, our spirit and the flesh battle all the time. And these tendencies are kind of ingrained in us because of our sinful nature. So why do we get to be there, but all of these people don't? Because of the cross. Remember, that's what I'm talking about. We, we don't fully grasp. We see through a glass darkly. We kind of, to the best of our ability, understand what happened on the cross. But here, we'll fully understand and comprehend what that actually meant through all of time. That was a pivotal moment in time when Jesus died on that cross and his blood was shed. We have no idea, I think, how huge that is. Oh, we want to, and we, we kind of think we do, but I really believe we don't even scratch the surface to the actual meaning of what happened on that cross. Someday, we will, completely, fully. And we're gonna be like, oh my goodness, so blessed to be here. So blessed to be part of this amazing, eternal plan that God has for me. And you'll be saying the same thing for you. Amen? Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, remember that one, he came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Again, it doesn't mention that it sets anywhere. You know, locations are a big deal in the Bible. You know, the Mount of Olives and, and Jerusalem and uh, the Nile and the Dead Sea and all of these places. It's specific if some big event happens, they're named. But you would think if the New Jerusalem descended out of heaven and landed somewhere, it would be mentioned, right? It's not, because could it be that it never does? Could it be that it's suspended between heaven and earth, this new city, this holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. This city being descended out of heaven, and there it is, and the writer here is saying that it's clear like jasper, and scholars believe that jasper is quite literally translated diamond. Could you imagine? A diamond, clear as crystal. Verse 12, also, she had a great and high wall, with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them, were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. That's how they measured things back then. They didn't have tape measures like we have today. They had a reed, and they would measure. We are told throughout all the Old Testament how things were to be measured, of the, the outer courts, inner courts, the temple this angel has this gold reed to measure this city and its gates and its walls. And verse 16, and the city is laid out, watch this, we're given details on this, we're kind of given blueprints, if you will. It's laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12 thousand furlongs its length breadth and height are equal three-dimensional what we have here is a big giant cube 
this giant diamond cube coming down out of heaven, suspended there, clear as crystal, has 12 foundations or 12 floors, if you will, giant square cube, 12,000 furlongs, or check this out, modern day language, 1,500 miles. We got to stop and take two steps back and think about that. A giant, clear, square cube diamond coming down from heaven, completely clear, see-through, but you can see it, 12 floors, 12 gates, three on each side with angels at each set. The names of the tribes, the names of the apostles, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles high. I can't get my mind around that. The only thing I can do is think about, okay, what does 1,500 miles look like from here east? Well, <laughs> you're pretty close. I, I did Denver just because. So Denver is 1,389 from Crescent City. Add 30 for Brookings. No, we're on the same coast. That's not going to work. But the point is, fifth, so 1,389 miles from Crescent City to Denver. So, yeah. So think about that. 1,500 miles, that, if that landed on Earth, and one corner landed in Crescent City, and it, it would go all the way past Denver, Colorado, almost to the Nebraska-Colorado border. That's how wide or long, deep, I, whatever. But then on top of that, it's 1,500, it's that tall with 12 floors or foundations that you could see through. So I'm at the Crescent City level. I don't want to be, but I am. But I'm in my glorified body, so if I wanted to be on the 12th, I could just think it and be there. How cool is that? I just go right through them, because that's what I can do then. Like Jesus just went through the door. So I could go to the 12th and then look down, and then I could look down through all of them from the 12th floor. This gigantic, enormous, we can't even put our, our minds to, diamond, see-through, new city. Jerusalem, 3 billion square miles in size, 3 billion. So it's cool because the Lord gives us a glimpse of this blueprint of this new city, this new city Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, clear as crystal, a jasper or diamond, 1,500 mile cube, tall, wide, square, three-dimensional, 12 stories, we can see through it, beautiful. And we can kind of put modern measurements to it. A volume of 3 billion square miles. The current population at, well, as of 2021, is the most recent I found, the current population of the planet is 7.8 billion people. So if 3 billion are Christians that are going to end up here, I'm going to refer this to my, my man, Craig, who loves numbers and calculations, and he's my numbers guy. He's, this is his assignment. His assignment is if 3 billion people were to end up here, and all the Christians throughout history, 90% of the world's po historical population is alive today, um, it, let's, say, let's say 4 billion people reside in this new city. How much property do we get? Okay, Craig, that's your assignment. That, that should keep him busy, because I don't know. He'll come up with something. Not now. We still have a Bible study to get through. Doing something recorded here. 
He'll, he'll work on that. But the point is this, it's ginormous. And I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. It's insanely huge. And you're going to get a huge portion of that. Do you deserve it? Nope. Neither do I. But it's what happened on the cross that allows us to take part in this amazing, beautiful plan. Okay. It's laid out in its height, breadth, furl. Okay, so 17. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measurement of a man, that is, of an angel, 216 feet. And it's not a wall to, you know, secrecy. I mean, all this stuff's see-through. So it's more of like, hey, you're with us. You're here. You're in the wall. Verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper, more diamond. I love the building materials God has. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Gold so pure, it's almost transparent, in, in other words. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And the first foundation was jasper, okay, or diamond. And the second was sapphire. The third, how do you say that? Chalcedony? Yeah, that. <laughs> the fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. A lot of S words. Um, the seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chryso chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. Do you even know what all these look like? Who knows what all this looks like? Who's a rock freak? I mean, an uh, enthusiast. Can't say freak in church. Okay, so we have a couple of people here that do know what these look like. Pretty incredible, the building materials God has. These are foundations made out of this. We're excited if you see a little ring in an amethyst that big. People go, oh, it's oh, amazing. Look out. No, this is a foundation made of this. This is what God makes stuff out of, right? This is what is at the fingertips of our Lord. Verse 12, 21. The 12 gate, excuse me, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. That's a giant oyster. That's one big oyster. That's what I'm told. Uh, pearl comes from an oyster. If it's natural, it's a grain of sand or some sort of parasite that gets in there. And then that film and its irritation the oyster's irritation to get that thing out uh, builds up this film or whatever, a membrane, there's a word for it, but it basically, in that endeavor, that whole process, it becomes something extremely valuable to us. And now we see a whole gate made of a single pearl. Amazing. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The asphalt in heaven is gold, folks. Not concrete, not cement. I mean, it's, it's we're walking on it. So to man, one thing that has never been argued all through the Bible, all through time, was the value of gold. It has its own value. And so it's kind of funny because if you listen to the radio now, that's all you hear is advertisements to buy gold because of the economic woes that we find ourselves in, not just in America, but all over the world. We see things lining up, and we've talked extensively about CBDC, uh, digital currency, and all that. Well, people are freaking out. So what, are, what now all of a sudden? We, we have all of this technology and digital currency and debit cards and plastic and all this stuff, and guess what we're all turning back to? Yeah, that one element that was never argued about its value because gold has its, it is its own value. And people are buying gold now because of their concern. And yet God just makes streets out of it. 
like it's nothing. You know, and I was talking to a guy one time at work about this. And I was telling him about heaven. I'm like, dude, crystal seas and streets of gold. We're going to walk on gold. And, and we're, we're going through kind of what we just described and what we read. And, you know, he was kind of cynical. And he's like, so what? Okay, so, so what is God trying to do? He's trying to lure me with like diamonds and gold and, and all of this stuff. He's trying to lure me there, you know. He's using this to lure me into his plan. And I just was like, really? That's how you take that? I said, all right, well, let me ask you a question. If the streets in heaven were gravel, would you still want to go? And he kind of just looked at me like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'd still want to go if it was gravel. Would you? It doesn't really matter. To me, I'm like, okay, yeah, these, this is fascinating. It, it blows my mind. I can't comprehend it. I can't imagine a 1,500-mile square diamond coming out of the sky that's see-through, but I can be in. That's amazing. That's God's plan. That's his business. The point is, where do I want to be? I want to be with the Lord. Because what did he say earlier in the chapter? He says, I will be their God, and they will be with me. We'll have this amazing communion with our Father and with the Lord that we always desire to have. That we just feel like, oh, we just can't quite get there here yet because we're in this time-space continuum and in this body. We're not there yet, but we, Lord, we want to be. Someday it'll all be clear. And I'm not just talking about the foundations of the New Jerusalem. I'm talking about the plan of God. Finally, we'll be able to do the things that we want to do so bad right now, but we'll be able to do it on a level that we cannot even comprehend. We'll be so fulfilled. And it only gets better. It says that we'll spend eternity getting to know the characteristics of God. There's things about God that we don't even know. And then we get there and it's like, boom, we just know it all all of a sudden? No. We'll still spend eternity getting to know more characteristics about God. That's how amazing and complex he is. Awesome. You guys, I'm so looking forward to this. We got to wrap this up. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Could you imagine that? During the millennium, what we're told is that the moon will be as bright as the sun is now. And the sun will be seven times brighter than it is now. And you can find that and read that for yourself in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26 is where you find that. But check this out. That's during the millennium. During this period, the old has passed away, remember? There's a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and this new city, Jerusalem, guess what? Guess what eliminates it? The glory of God. Could you imagine that light which man couldn't even come close to the Shekinah glory. Remember, Moses had to hide his faith because when he was in his presence, it started to fade, so he had a veil. He didn't want the people to go, oh, you're not in communication with God anymore, right? But when he was, oh, he shone. He couldn't hardly even stand it, though. Could you imagine that lighting up this 1,500-mile, 1,500-mile, 12-foundational-story 12, 12 diamond? What will that look like? Can you even paint that in your, your men, uh, mental picture? I can't hardly. The lamb is its light. And the nations of those are saved. Excuse me. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Oh, how neat. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So these gates are always open. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall, be, there shall by no means enter it anything that defies 
or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There, I finally was able to say it right. <laughs> the Lamb's book of life. Your name and my name are written in that book. If you've asked Jesus into your heart to be your savior and you're walking with him and you're in communion with him and reading your word and you're in fellowship and I mean, that's all of those things. That's the characteristic of a Christian, right? But the very simple thing is this. What does it get us back to? It gets us back to the cross. And I told my friend this at work the other day. I'm like, if you even just believe right now that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believe he did that because he loves you, guess what? You're a Christian. You're saved. If you even believe that right now, and yes, there's things that we would love to see, you know, you're to repent and turn 180 from your sin, and, and now you have a new life. But when does that salvation happen? The minute you believe that what Jesus did on that cross. That's what it gets us back to. There's that thing, again, that we see, we don't really understand its impact, but we know how important it is, and we know how vital it is. We just don't know how important and how it impacts all of time and history and dimensions and everything we don't even know about exists. I truly believe that through all of that, one pivotal time, moment in time, was what happened on that cross. Beautiful, amazing.